Welcome back to the Lessons for Tomorrow podcast, the motivational poster in your ear. I'm your host, Tim Melanius, VP for Strategic Initiatives at AmericanEagle.com. In this episode, we're going to be diving into tax complexities in the e-commerce space. To discuss this, I am joined by our special guests, Mary Cho and Troy Blusky. Mary is the tax director on Avalara's professional services team and is focused on assisting customers with their historical sales tax obligations. She's been at Avalara for over three years now and has close to 30 years of experience with indirect state and local taxes. Her background experience and past employment with the Washington Department of Revenue and several public accounting firms allows her to provide high growth, complex companies with unique insights in minimizing sales tax risk and exposure. Very excited to have you on, Mary. Thanks, Tim. Thanks for having us. Yeah, absolutely. And Troy, you are the tax director also on the Avalara's professional services team where you are focusing on assisting customers with their historical sales tax obligations. You've been in the space for 20 years with experience working on sales and use tax issues. And you have prior experience, including state and local tax director at national public accounting firms. And you've also worked in the internal tax departments of multinational corporations. And uh, a fun fact, you are a graduate of the University of Wisconsin. So we were just talking about Wisconsin a little bit before we started recording the show, another favorite state of mine and in Seattle where Mary's at as well. Um, but just fun aspect of just bringing the states into the end of these intros is just that we're going to be talking a lot about states and nexus laws and everything when it comes to taxes and how what a fun solution the uh, United States have individually brought to the e-commerce space when it comes to taxing. But before we do that, Mary, would you mind giving our listeners a little bit of an intro to Avalara and just what Avalara does? Yeah, absolutely, Tim. Um, so Avalara is headquartered in Seattle, Washington, where I'm located. They provide a cloud-based solutions to automate the tax collection, filing, and remittance for small, mid-sized, and enterprise organizations. We have about 30,000 customers across 95 countries, so not only just sales tax, but we do also do that in GST, but definitely expanding as tax compliance gets kind of complicated, especially in the U.S. Wonderful. Appreciate that. With kind of getting into the conversation today, right, Lessons for Tomorrow podcast, we like to look at lessons from the past to apply in the present for success in the future. So kind of take me back a little bit and talk about the evolution of just taxes when it came into the e-commerce space and, and how it's kind of evolved over time to what we're experiencing today. So back in the day, online sales started, taxes were probably pretty much an afterthought to most of those stores starting up before the states really started to say, hey, wait, there's something that we want to also be able to get from all these online sales. And then we had different aspects of Nexus. So uh, Troy or Mary, uh, whichever one of you wants to kind of jump on that first and uh, kind of talk us through what was it like and where did that evolution really kind of start to come into play? Right. I'll, I'll kind of start out with that since I, I did work at a big box retailer at one time. So sales tax was always um, a requirement for businesses that had a physical presence in a state. Um, sales tax started back in the 1920s. I think West Virginia might have been the first state to impose it. But um, back then, it was, it was pretty, uh, pretty simple, right? You would go to the general store, buy some um, goods and supplies. They would charge you sales tax. You would pay it, and then you would leave. And really, it was simple, simple transactions. And 
being in a, a big box store, even those were relatively still simple, right? You had a store in, in every major city or every suburb in the, in the U.S. People would go to the stores, buy their items and leave. And, and that really started to change with online retailers. Obviously, Amazon, the big player there. All of a sudden now, Amazon based in Washington, only location in Washington, yet people throughout the United States could buy books, right? Amazon began selling books. They could they could buy books from Amazon from anywhere in the US. Amazon would ship the books to to their residents and Amazon had no requirements to uh, collect uh, and remit sales tax from their customers outside of Washington. And so this really turned everything on top of its on top of its head because all of a sudden we have the bricks and mortar stores complaining that there's an unfair tax advantage that, that online retailers have. So really, since then, there's been this momentum to try and figure out a way as, as to how can states tax these out-of-state online retailers. Wonderful. Appreciate that background, Troy. And I think that uh, it's a good segue to also talk about the evolution of the tax, right? Not only from the, the physical goods, but as we've seen with the growth in digital goods, right, of the ways that software, I'll, I'll use that and, and pick on that as a, a product, we used to have that, well, back in the day, it was on floppy disks that you would buy and get a whole big stack of them. Uh, I've saved some of those so my kids can understand that there used to be something you had to put into a computer in order to do something. But overall, then we moved into, you know, CD-ROMs and everything from that perspective. But then it moved into electronic software, right? So physical products, right? Bit easy to tax, easier to tax. But when you got into the digital side or you got into the, what is now with all the cloud software side of things that is happening, what's that done to the, the taxing abilities based on the type of products that we now have or even the subscription models that are really prevalent nowadays versus the single purchase? And then, you know, just any services also related, right? When you're buying a service through a digital e-commerce format for maybe something in your home um, that isn't a necessarily brick and mortar transaction. Yeah, right. Um, I, I think my career goes back to the late 90s when software is still delivered on disk. Even some of my first clients, they still had the big tapes, if, you, if you've ever seen them in the, in the big mainframe rooms. And, and it was tangible property, right? It was on a, a disk, a tape, and, and that's what sales tax was, a tax on tangible personal property. There, there was a time when, when the question was, well, what is software? Is it intangible property? What is it? But, but states kind of, you know, they'll work around and they'll get the definition that software is included in the definition of tangible personal property. So sales of software was pretty um, straightforward. And then the economy changes and now software can be delivered electronically and downloaded on our desktops or downloaded to a company server. And then states have to pivot again. Um, they will expand the definition of software to include electronically delivered software. But then again, the economy changes and now software is cloud-based. There is no um, delivery of software. Customers access it and there's no transfer of property. So now what do states do? Well, if states want to tax that service, they have to specifically identify that service as being subject to tax in the state statutes, or once again, they will expand the definition of software to include any software that is delivered or accessed and used in your state. So, so again, it's always the economy shifts, um, the marketplace changes, states have to react to it, to tax items and, and make sure their revenues and their budgets can stay intact. 
And I can add to that too. I think some of the challenges that we've seen with customers is that with the evolution of technology is that they can't just put it in a bucket of what we're selling SaaS. It's, you know, it's, could it be information services, data processing? Is it professional services? And getting to your point, Tim, there's like these bundled transactions and, and how are they invoicing it? Is, are they just charging one flat fee? Or are they separately itemizing it? You know, as I mentioned earlier, you know, Avalair, we're, you know, a SaaS company, but we also like Troy and I are in the professional services team. And so we offer services, but we also offer subscriptions. And so oftentimes we have customers that they don't even know. Maybe we are selling software. Maybe we're not. And so, um, and then also the taxability that's driven as a consequence of how it's being taxed. And all of a sudden they back up and say, well, maybe we're not selling software. Maybe the better answer is that we're selling professional services. And so I kind of laugh because it's kind of like, well, you don't determine how your products and services are characterized based on the tax results. But oftentimes, unfortunately, we have customers that of course, they want to lean towards, well, it's not taxable based on the answer, not so much as to what it is that they're truly selling. Wonderful. Appreciate that, Mary, as well, of just the background for anyone in e-commerce space. Right now, I've, I've been in e-commerce for probably 20 years now, but it's grown so much. And, and working with some of our clients, it's you know both the, the physical and the digital side of goods. It's always interesting, too, to see the variances by state, even down to county zip code of what taxing is and and becomes. And as as I worked with our e-commerce clients, it was very revealing to me the depth that some of these states would go to from a taxation perspective of, all right, well, if you're selling a physical good, well, what is it made of? Different materials get taxed at different levels. And then you take in what you just talked about with SaaS and, and the way that it's used, but you might have a company that is offering like yourselves, a SaaS product, but then also professional services. And then how is that handled from a transaction and, and taxing perspective? So definitely great insight for our listeners um, overall on that. Let's talk about just where we look at businesses and, and compliance, right? So if you have a, a business who is not compliant and they suddenly have a filing obligation, how can they overcome any liabilities or some suggestions that you have? And, and Mary, maybe you want to kick this one off and then Troy jump in and get your thoughts on those. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, so we come across this almost multiple times a day. Um, companies that are not compliant, our message is that they need to be compliant as soon as possible as the uncollected tax will continue to accrue. Um, the statute of limitations does not apply because if they're never compliant, and, and unfortunately, a lot of companies don't understand that they are liable for the uncollected tax if they triggered physical or economic nexus for the prior periods. And so unfortunately, tax is not going to be forgiven. Um, and so if they were contacted by the tax authorities and they're not registered when they should be, that's where it's going to be hitting them really hard because they can go back indefinitely. It could be like physical nexus was triggered, you know, having an employee, let's say, you know, eight, 10 years ago. So it'll be tax, interest, and penalties applied. Um, penalties range from 10 to 50 percent, depending on the state. So, in terms of a solution, uh, one option is a voluntary disclosure agreement. Every state has that available. Some states call it a managed audit. But a voluntary disclosure is where a company comes forward, raise their hand, and say, "Hey, we should have been registered," you know. 10, 15 months ago, but we didn't. Um, as a result, the states would then um, forgive the penalties. Not so much interest. There are a few states that will, um, like Texas will also forgive interest as well as penalties. 
But also the big thing is um, limiting the look back period, um, usually three to four years instead of going back to, you know, eight, 10 years uh, from when, you know, Nexus was first created. Um, so that could be a benefit of the volunteer disclosure. But the downside of that is, unfortunately, they have to come up with taxes that they never collected, right? So they got to pay up all the back taxes under a volunteer disclosure. The other option is registration. And that's more forward-looking. And so with a lot of these states now, they have online registration. Every registration has a question when you start business or when you start selling in the state. The question is basically when you trigger Nexus. And so the states have built in this logic where they won't allow you to put a date past 90 days. And so we do have a few customers that what I call become a creative and they put today's date. Some of the states like California has come back to our customers and say, well, you know, we got your application and we discovered that through our investigation that you've been doing business prior to um, the beginning of this month. And so would you please chew up your application and put down the true date? Otherwise, we'll come and audit you for the mm-hmm. next eight years. And so so those are the kind of things where you come in a quagmire um, is like, gosh, you know, I don't have the tax I didn't collect. I'm responsible for now the, cla- the tax. And a lot of our customers that come to us, they're exposed in like not just one or two states, but I would say 10 to 35 states. And so, and a lot of them want to do the right thing. Um, They are unfortunately cash strapped, right? So they'll do volunteer disclosures and phases or they'll stagger them, or they'll do what I call like an 80-20. So they'll do like 80% of the liabilities in like, you know, top tier states. Um, And then the rest, they'll just register and cross their fingers and hope the states don't come back. And so, so that's kind of some of the suggestions we offer our customers. I know it's not what they want to hear, but it's unfortunate that the tax will not go away. It's, it's going to be sitting there until it gets resolved. Yeah. And and Mary, going back to unpack the penalty a little bit more, when you talk about that, I believe if I heard correctly, it was 10 to 50%, right? 55 zero. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Washington, where I'm at, it's 39%. Wow. Wow. And and now that is a penalty percentage on top of what metric at the business? Is that on their GP on their? On the tax due. On the tax due. Okay. So a percentage of the tax due. That could yep. be 50% of the tax due. And same thing with interest. It's a mm-hmm. percentage of the tax due. Yep. Wonderful. Thank you for for unpacking yeah. that a little bit more there. But I mean, that is a significant thing to watch out yeah. for when you have these different states at those much higher penalty rates of making sure that you are as being compliant as possible, utilizing some of the tactics that you talked through. Uh, Troy, anything to add into uh, this area of conversation? Yeah, no, I'm just more to Mary's point. You know, another benefit of those voluntary disclosures is they will limit that look back to three to four years. And while we have many of our customers come forth thinking it's economic nexus that they've triggered an economic nexus really just came into play about four years ago. When we kind of do a review with them, we find out that, no, they actually might have had a physical presence in these states going back six, seven, eight years. And so that's another big benefit of those voluntary disclosures is it limits that look back period three to four years when they have had nexus in states for much longer than that. Mm -hmm. And that economic nexus that you mentioned, that really stemmed from the 2018 ruling with Wayfair in South Dakota, right? That's where kind of this whole 
uh, rush of uh, economic nexus stemmed from? Yes, the, the, that is correct. That's the the big court ruling in the sales tax world. So everybody that's a, a sales tax nerd like Mary and I, it was a, a big thing. Um, I actually had colleagues that went to the the Supreme Court and camped overnight in in hopes of getting inside the courtroom to hear the the hearings. So it was it was crazy. But but yes, you are right. South Dakota was a state that first implemented an economic nexus. Um, they, their rule was $100,000 of sales over a 12-month period or 200 or more separate sales transactions. If you met either of those thresholds, you would be deemed to have nexus in South Dakota. Um, and so Wayfair and a number of other online retailers did not like this because they saw where this was going, right? All of a sudden, they if South Dakota starts, all the other states are going to follow. So they kind of wanted to put a stop to this. And and it, the, the cases got expedited and it went very fast all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. And really the Supreme Court, it was a close decision. It was a 5-4 decision, but the majority basically ruled and said, you know, the economy's changed. Um, you can transact commerce without having physical presence, nexus in states. And really, they will accept the economic nexus um, laws as long as there is a threshold in place. And they felt that South Dakota's thresholds were reasonable. They gave kind of a safe harbor for maybe some smaller businesses. And so um, they ruled in favor of South Dakota. And since then, within a matter of you know, three or four years, all the other states have imposed the sales tax, have enacted a economic nexus. And those thresholds are, they do vary by state, but we've kind of seen a general tier structure, right, that has come about where maybe there's about six or seven so different varying thresholds, potentially, if I if I remember correctly. And that's just dollar amount or transaction count, right? And is there any yeah, that, that change yeah, it from and, an or to an and? So it's both dollar and? Yeah, it can be. <laughs> yeah. And that's the tricky part because a lot of, a lot of businesses try and apply one rule to fit all and, and that does not, not work. Again, some states that might just be a, a dollar value, $100,000 of sales. Some of the bigger states like California, Texas, they might use $500,000. Um, some states still use the, the sales threshold or transactional threshold. I believe there's a couple states that have a sales threshold and a transactional threshold, meaning you have to meet both. There's always the nuances of some states base that economic nexus just off of taxable sales, where some states will include all sales to meet that economic nexus. And so mm -hmm. it is it is quite the uh, puzzle to, to really figure out the states where you have economic nexus or not. And yeah. um, we spend much of our time evaluating for that as well. Yeah, and you used a great yeah, word there, puzzle. Sorry, Mary, just one second, mm -hmm. because uh, I know in the, the mid-year report from Avalara that's on your website, for example, Louisiana has 64 different sales tax jurisdictions just in one state. And so you get these complexities, not only at the statewide level, but then as you continue to go deeper into local levels, which were not specified in that ruling, it kind of left it open for that to be determined alongside of these thresholds. Sorry, Mary, I, I kind of jumped in there. Oh, no, that's OK. Um, I was just going to add to Troy what we've seen in terms of economic nexus with the transaction counts is that it hits our customers hard where they sell low dollars and high volume like T-shirts and hats. And so now the cost of compliance, right? So they're like, they, you know, their margins are, you know, you know, short anyways. And so now they got to pay for a compliance where, you know, so that hits them hard. And then also our rules are so complicated that once they have the thresholds set, 
then they go and change it, right? Mm-hmm. So then you have all these staggered start and, and end dates in terms of the thresholds. Um, the you know, Our international customers think that the U.S. is like they're nuts in terms of all the different jurisdictions. And, and to your point, then Louisiana, not only that, but also Colorado, mm-hmm. right? They have these self-administered um, cities and counties. And I think in Colorado, there's like 71. Mm-hmm. And not all the cities and counties are you know, self-reporting. And I think with Colorado, they um, have implemented economic nexus. I haven't heard it for Louisiana, um, but certainly with, you know, 65 or 71 jurisdictions that exceeds the 46 states that have sales tax compliance. And so um, oftentimes our customers are like, gosh, and I got to pay Avalara to file all these returns from a practical standpoint. Should you or do you need to register in all 65 jurisdictions, all the parishes in Louisiana? Uh, and so I always kind of question that back to our customers. It's more of a business decision as how how they want to be compliant. Absolutely. And you brought up Colorado, which just recently had a July 1st tax change on delivered goods as well. So I don't know if either one of you want to kind of unpack that a little bit for our listeners. Yeah. So they imposed a, a delivery fee on the delivery of goods. Um, and it's interesting because it's based on per order, not, not necessarily number of deliveries. So, so on one order, maybe that order would have three or four different delivery sites, but the, the fee is still just imposed at, at that rate, which I believe was 27 cents, if I'm correct. Um, I, I don't remember it off the top of my head. But it is interesting that they're clearly seeing, again, the economy's changed. People are at home. They are delivering goods. Um, are they are asking orders to be delivered to their house more and more, whether it's food, just supplies from the, the local hardware store or, or whatnot. And um, it's just another revenue generator for states. And Colorado is kind of the first to, to implement that. And I wouldn't be surprised if others follow. Yeah. And, and this is one reason, too, where we appreciate partnerships with companies such as yourselves at Avalara, where because of the constant change that's happening, you're constantly updating your product so that when we have that integrated for our clients who are e-commerce based, who have deliveries going into Colorado, for example, with this recent one, you're already working on those updates inside of the system to work on the collection and everything like that. So that it's really coming through from covering you from the aspect of as things are continually going to be changing, uh, because we're not going to get to a set single tax rate across the entire U.S. Uh, with the way that we're doing all the local levels, that you're already working on those as they are getting passed at the local level into helping your clients understand how to appropriately report or collect on whatever those changes are. And I think that's just one of the the benefits of ensuring that you're not trying to just depend on your e-commerce platform to do this, but you're really working with a tax expert uh, such as yourselves from that. And then knowing that, you know, with compliance and everything, there's the professional services side, just as much as the tax side for the identification of the different products and everything so that you've got people such as both of you, Troy and Mary, who are able to go in and, and guide and, and educate customers and, and really help them along the path that they are going down. So as we look at the aspect of, you know, just the economic nexus, we talked through the changes that are happening with everything there. What are other ways that businesses can start to be more proactive to remain compliant? I think it's a, a, a switch from being reactive. You talked about a couple examples there of the voluntary and everything. But is there any other ways that they can just be engaging with uh, the professional services side of Avalara or 
other means. Uh, I, you know, for one with the privacy laws has been a big follower of that over the past several years since uh, GDPR and then uh, California's and now all the different states that are doing privacy laws, which is separate from tax. But what are other ways that they can maybe, you know, look at being proactive uh, with regards to compliance? Yeah, I can take on that one. Um, in terms of being proactive, um, monitoring, like, for example, physical nexus. Um, when I was in the private industry, um, I used to receive tax notices um, after the fact of hiring an individual. And so my boss would come to me and say, is there some reason we can get a handle around this rather than getting tax notices? And so uh, what I would do is um, I would meet with the payroll department or facilities to understand you know, the hiring of new employees, whether it be remote or that we had a new office that they had launched. And so then we would then also um, work with them to then get registered in those states. So you have to be more you know, active in the um, business operations, unfortunately, because I, I try to have them contact me, but that didn't work, right? So I would have meetings with them on the calendar every quarter. Also, um, looking at the expense reimbursements for travel. So you have employees that may go to a trade show or they go travel for prospects. Um, so those are kind of things to see if they had you know, airfare or hotel that you know that they have a physical nexus. Also, Avalara, and I know some other service providers have what we call the economic nexus heat map. And so we have that as part of Avatax, is that based on the data that is in our system, we do have some high-level logic that would give you alerts as to when you're close to or have exceeded economic nexus. And so, so those are kind of the tools that we have built in. You know, I do have customers that monitoring these going forward the exercise of what they owed in the past is such a painful experience that, you know, they ask the question, so what's the harm of just registering in all states, especially if it's a matter of when versus if they exceed the economic nexus. And so I do have customers that say, you know what, what the heck, we'll just kind of register in all 46 states and not have to deal with the compliance of reviewing uh, the thresholds or if they do the travel. Mm-hmm. Great, great ideas there. Troy, anything to, to add before we jump into preparing for an audit when that day comes? No, I don't have anything to add from Mary said, but I can speak to um, audits. If yeah, let's, like. let's jump into the audit. It's one of those I always go back and I'm going to go on a personal tangent here for just a second before we jump into it from a business. But it's always one of those. I'm like, all right, how long do I have to keep my receipts? How long do I need to have this? Can I convert everything to digital? If I ever get audited, what do I need to do? And I'm just like, why would I worry? My accountant will take care of all of that with me and tell me what I have to do. But now let's talk about businesses and audits. And when that moment comes as a a business and how do you prepare for that? What tools are available for uh, businesses from that perspective? And, you know, specifically just how the whole both whether you have physical stores or e-commerce, right? How do you just really prepare your organization for that? Right. I think what's interesting to point out is, you know, for state revenue and state budget, sales tax, you know, generally ranges between 30 to 40 percent of a, of a state's budget. So it's a significant portion of a state's budget. And one way states do or the main way states um, can protect that, that source of money is by enforcement and through audits. And um, even if you don't get audited, you, you still know there's, there's that chance that you might. So, so it's always best to, to, to be prepared the best you can in terms of audits. And the best way to do it is, is to be in compliance and, and do many of the things Mary, Mary just spoke about. 
two areas where states find underpayments or find assessments on companies. One, one of them, one of the big ones is exemption certificate documentation. So you're a company and you may sell to a wholesaler who eventually sells to a, a customer or another retailer. Your sales would be exempt from, from sales tax because of it's a resale transaction. But you need to um, gather that resale exemption documentation from that wholesaler. Or if you're selling to a manufacturer, they might have an exemption because they're using um, your products or goods in a, in a manufacturing process. Again, you need to collect that uh, um, exemption certificate from that customer. And, and that's really the number one area that states find uh, taxpayers lacking is maintaining of that exemption documentation. And it's, it's really easy. States come, they audit your sales. You claim these sales are exempt. They'll say, great, but um, you got to provide that documentation. If you don't, they're just going to apply tax interest and penalties on that until you, you prove otherwise. And it's much easier to gather that uh, those exemption certificates at the time the transaction is made than follow up with the company, you know, months later or even years later. Because years later, the company might be out of business or they may have sold and, and your contacts with that company aren't there anymore. And unfortunately, a state's not going to feel too bad for you. They're going to want to get that, that documentation. And if they don't have it, tax is going to be, be assessed on that. And really, the other big area that they assess tax on is on your purchase side. When you have vendors, generally out-of-state vendors that aren't charging sales tax to you, um, on a taxable transaction, you would have to accrue the use tax, pay the use tax to the state. And the out-of-state vendor, one, they may not have an access or requirement to charge that tax, or they could be out of compliance as well and, and should be charging the tax, but don't. But if states audit, if the state audits your purchases, you will owe tax on those transactions. So those are really two big areas that we find um, are gaps in companies on, on audits. And really, there are there are tools out there that can help you. Um, Avalara has a, a cert capture tool that um, that is really helps automate your exemption certificate process and make sure those exemption certificates are updated, they're accurate, they're in place. It will. Um, you know, it'll send um, emails to your to your customers asking for for the uh, the exemption certificates and just help really manage that whole process. So it's not a manual, um, painstaking paper process that's in files and and the files get lost. And so and so that that's one real key tool to automating the your sales tax process that will help you with audits. And um, there are also systems as well for the use tax side, and, and Avalara has that as well on the consumer's use tax. So it'll help identify transactions where ta you made purchases, tax wasn't um, tax wasn't charged, or tax was charged and the rate was incorrect. So it can adjust for that. And so that there are resources and tools out there, and certainly automating that process is going to make things much more accurate and efficient for you. Wonderful. Definitely appreciate the breakdown there of ways that you can just be preparing for that, collecting those, the the tools that are available to help automate that. I think that's a, a wonderful way for businesses to kind of, again, it's not, you can set it and forget it, but a way to not worry about manually trying to capture everything, but really starting to automate some of that process and, and having your checkpoints that are the manual steps to ensure that it is happening and you're getting what you need in preparation for it. One area and, and, and something you mentioned just about kind of out-of-state vendors and everything kind of triggered something in my head uh, about asking, which is about marketplaces. So a big shift that we've been seeing in e-commerce space is with regards to the use of a marketplace for multiple businesses to be in the same marketplace to be selling goods or services. 
how does that start to impact the taxing by that business? Is is a marketplace, you know, facilitating some more of that? There's marketplace facilitator laws, but it's it's compliance for both the facilitator and the seller, from from my understanding of it. Is there anything you can unpack uh, around that aspect of marketplaces and e-commerce? I can address that, Tim. Um, so the marketplace facilitator laws came into play, I think, the same time around with economic nexus. Um, with marketplace facilitators prior to the law being in place, like Amazon's and Ebay's and, and so forth, they would collect the tax on behalf of the seller. And then the seller would be responsible for remitting the tax to the taxing authorities. And so with the marketplace facilitator laws, that's where now all of a sudden the responsibility of collecting, remitting the tax and the correct amount of tax would be on the marketplace facilitators. And so now it's going from one source rather than multiple sellers. Also, the marketplace facilitators are responsible for getting the tax rate in their system, also in dealing with audits and documentation. So they're kind of in the shoes of the seller. And then with the marketplace sellers, um, a lot of times they have their own website, right? So they oftentimes are not aware that, um, well, you know, the response we get is, oh, we sell a majority of our stuff in the marketplace. And so Amazon is collecting the tax or eBay is. But then the question is, follow-up is, well, how about that small percentage that you're getting from your website? And they're like, oh yeah, I missed that. So that's the, the gap, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, with the laws, and I did some research on this too, is every state's a little different in terms of their definition, what it includes and excludes, meaning like travel industry, is that a marketplace facilitator or advertising? Yeah. Um, is that part of the marketplace facilitators? And so there's certain carve-outs. Um, we do have some customers that would argue to the end of this earth and say that we are not a marketplace facilitator. We are just, you know, advertising on behalf of a bunch of sellers, right? And so but definitely the shift has gone to marketplace facilitators having a lot more obligations and responsibilities than they didn't they that did not have before. So but it's a it's a great space uh, for people who don't have the resources to have a platform to sell their products. Absolutely. And I, you mentioned this and it's just making sure that as a seller, you understand what the marketplace is doing as a marketplace, you understand what the seller is doing because you don't want to over collect. If both suddenly collect, you don't want to under collect and then have to report too. So for those e-commerce organizations out there, when you're looking at, and it's, it's not just pure e-commerce too, it's, I mean, if you are selling goods as an association through your online store for books, but you also sell those books on Amazon as well, you can't, you have to know what each party is collecting appropriately. So definitely appreciate you unpacking that one a a bit more as well. So as we're kind of looking to the last few questions here for the episode today, uh, an interesting one just with where the economy is at right now in in the United States, but how have rising fuel, labor, and product costs impacted the world of tax compliance overall? And I, I look backwards a little bit of just what happened with logistics and delivery and uh, delivery surcharges are starting to be added and the different ways that people during the pandemic, uh, the past two years when things were shut down, how that impacted the collection of where suddenly there was a surge of new e-commerce happening that were from organizations that weren't typically selling in e-commerce. They were a bit more accelerated into that space than the normal growth that was happening. And uh, with all of that, how do those three areas really impact you know the world of tax compliance overall? Um, I'll take that question. Um, I, I do have customers, uh, the supply chain, they're sold out, uh, especially with COVID with like home gyms or outdoor mm-hmm. equipment, um, toys, puzzles and games. 
And so because they're sold out, they're taking pre-orders or prepay or deposits, right? And so they're committed to these orders, uh, but they don't have the product to ship. And so they're not able to ship until like maybe six or eight months later. But then, of course, as your point, Tim, is the raising freight costs. Um, I have a customer that is selling exercise equipment and it's heavy, right? And they have the battery and then the metals associated with it. And so when they had taken um, pre-orders six, eight months ago, now the freight cost is now exponentially higher. And then, of course, they didn't cut sales tax for those pre-orders or included that in the, um, the checkout. So now they have those two components that they're now afraid that they are, you know, responsible for. So the question is, well, should I go back to the customer and ask them to pay for the differentiate between the, the freight costs eight months ago to now what it is now, as well as a sales tax? And it could be like fifteen hundred bucks to two thousand mm-hmm. bucks. It's not the best customer experience, right? So how would you like it if you bought something and you thought that you know you're waiting for, and then all of a sudden you're like, now it's more expensive. It's it, yeah, it's it's definitely one of those things from a business standpoint that they have to decide on. But a lot of my customers don't go back and charge tax because it's not like I mentioned, it's not the best customer experience. Mm-hmm. But yeah, with increased prices, um, I also have seen customers add a line item for these tariff fees or mm-hmm. you know taxes or all these ancillary fees that they're subject to to pass that fee or tax onto their customers as a separate line item. I know taxing authorities don't like that because as well as consumer protection laws, right? Mm -hmm. So if you have an invoice as a consumer, why do you have tariff fees or tax that is, you know, it's not the same rate, but they're passing on the tax that are being charged by their suppliers. It gets really complicated, but the taxing authorities don't like that because it has the perception that the seller is collecting and remitting it when they're not. It's basically the seller recouping their fee, the cost Mm -hmm. of doing business. Um, and so, but yeah, definitely it has impacted. It's again, going back to all these complications of tax, but unfortunately what we've seen is tax is not like the first thing that comes to mind. It's an afterthought. I think you mentioned that early on, Tim, is that not just the evolution of software, um, but it is an afterthought taxes. It's after the fact, unfortunately. Yeah. And, and, and it's so true. And I think that's why I uh, just today's conversation. And I know as American Eagle.com, as we work with our e-commerce clients, it's one of the first things we start to talk about because we don't want that to be an afterthought. We don't want that to be something that is surprising at the end of a project right before an e-commerce redesign goes live or a new e-commerce site goes up because it's one of those that there's a lot of complexity behind it. And if you wait until the last minute to try and do it or you wait until after you're already live and you're trying to, to backfill it in and retrofit it, it's just it's, it causes more headache and frustration and stress than needed for everyone. Overall, I, I guess as we, we think about the future, I want to ask about two specific areas and then just what each of you kind of see and, and where, where you think in the next three years or so tax uh, taxes are going with regards to the e-commerce space. But what about the big rise of NFTs and the metaverse and metaverse mm-hmm. transactions that are now coming into play? And, and I'll, I'll lump in there one more and, and toss in cryptocurrency where we're starting to see a lot of buzz around NFTs. A lot of people suddenly went out and got them. There's, you know, baseball card sales for NFTs and artwork and other things. But then even just within the metaverse and and the metaverse, I'll I'll, I'll loosely describe as, you know, people say the Web 3.0 blockchain as well as virtual reality. I'm going to go more into the virtual reality side of it, where it's a new medium we're starting to get transactions within. 
how is that all, you know, what, what's happening next? How are those being considered inside of the taxation space? Uh, and, and what are your predictions of where everything's going to go uh, with taxes and, and collection? Yeah, I think that's a good point. I think we've kind of come full circle. We earlier discussed, you know, kind of the evolution of software and how states or the economy changed and, and states had to follow. And this is just another one of those areas. Um, yeah, in, in, in 2021, um, NFT sales total, totaled $25 billion. And so it's a large chunk of change. And so where, where there's money, taxes will likely soon follow. Um, if you applied the average uh, state and local tax rate to that $25 billion, you're, you're close to about $2 billion in, in tax revenue. So my guess is the states are, are going to eventually figure out a way, way to get there. And many experts think they're already there, as, as many states already have definitions for digital codes, digital products, digital services. Some of these experts and in, in, in state authorities are saying, well, we think um, definitions of NFTs will fit under these digital codes that we currently have. Um, now, opponents will say, no, there, there, might be, there, there might still need to be some legislation or, or some regulations updated to get there. I know... Um, State of Washington just came out with a, a very nice statement in regards to how they would tax NFTs, and, and they laid it out fairly well. That they they showed what their definitions were and and how they would apply the tax. That was one of the first states I've seen to do that. I would hope more more would come around to that. So it's interesting because because the NFTs you can you can go out and buy an, an NFT for a digital digital clothing or digital artwork. Or like a, a digital shoe, you can buy a pair of Air Jordan, Nike Air Jordan NFT shoes. And then with that, you have the rights to buy the next model of the, the real Air Jordan shoe. And so in sales tax, well, this becomes a bundled transaction. So how do you tax that? And so there's questions around that as well. So, so it's, it's, it's just another uh, universe and um, states and, and legislatures are just going to have to react if, if they want a piece of, of that pie. Yeah, and, and that's the the digital goods. And then to the the metaverse aspect, there's several major brands who are doing, like you mentioned, right? The You can buy it in the digital world. You can outfit your avatar with them. And it's just a, a digital representation without the physical. But some are even looking at the trade-in for the physical. And you can also gift it, right? And then there's the aspect of, well, if I gift the digital, but then they can trade that in for a physical, is the physical because now you're dealing with materials and, you know, we briefly mentioned that earlier, but just like the aspect of there's different taxes and rates by the material in the uh, product, right? So uh, certain things with either leather or feathers or whatever it might be, right? How does that all start to come into play and how are you monitoring that? Because, you know, you're, you're not collecting again a second time if they trade it in unless you associate some sort of fee. So I think there's a lot that's going to have to be figured out in that space mm -hmm. when you start to go between the two mediums, digital to physical world. So, No, right. And, and you know, in some states, clothing might be exempt. So does mm -hmm. that apply to <laughs> digital clothing? Or, or So, so it, it gets more cumbersome the more, the more you think about it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, you know, you're talking about like the shields and the games. I remember years ago when um, before this NFTs and then the metaverse, you know, these terminologies, it was like the points, right? You earn mm -hmm. at these games and then you trade the points in for a shield. And then to your point, Tim, is like, then you might get a T-shirt. Yeah. Um, so the question back then was, it's kind of these all evolving. There's always going to be something uh, with tax. But yeah, the question back of the points was, well, do you account for it when it's earned or when you'd redeem it? And, and so, but yeah, it's, um, that's why 
Troy and I have, it's, this is a job security for us. It's always, it's always going to be there. And, but yeah, it's always evolving. A lot of interesting positions being taken by the taxing authorities, as well as the seller right there. Going back to my earlier discussion with marketplace, I have customers that say, we're not MNFT. We're not, we're just, you know, selling a moment in time or, you know, certain things that they want to characterize. So again, they don't want to have the tax applied to it. But with these NFTs, with these collectibles, um, the pricing uh, for these products are pretty high. So you want to make sure you make the right decision um, if you do get audited because you don't want to be on the hook for the uh, tax that you didn't collect and you should have. Yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, both of you have said it. And just to, to state it one last time, where there's a place where suddenly a big product or service is really starting to take off, taxes will soon follow. And we'll have to figure out with, uh, especially here in the U.S., what those taxes are going to be, not at the federal level, but at the state and local levels as well. So uh, for more information, definitely we recommend that you go to Avalara, check out their website. Uh, We'll have links in the show notes to a couple of the reports that we talked about and just to their main site if you are looking for more information. Definitely, Mary, Troy, appreciate your time on the show today to kind of talk through these areas. Any parting thoughts that you want to leave our listeners with about taxes as uh, we're entering the you know kind of last part of the year here in 2022? I would just say that with everything evolving and changing, um, you do need to have a third source to help or outsourcing it. Um, of course, Avalara or having a tax advisor to help keep track of it. Unless you have a huge tax department with uh, resources that could keep track of all these law changes um, and effective dates, end dates, you know, laws are re- you know repealed. That's why I went into laws because there's so it's always evolving. There's something constant change, but definitely it, it does create some complexities and hardship for a lot of our customers. Right, and we we just want our we want our customers and e-commerce businesses to be able to focus on their business and, and anything yeah. we can do or another tax advisor can do to to assist them with it, with the tax side of it, um, the better. Then they can focus on their business and, and do what's necessary to to keep the the economy going. <laughs> Wonderful, wonderful. Well, Mary, Troy, it was a pleasure talking with you today. Appreciate your time. Uh, and I want to thank all of our listeners for tuning into the future by listening to Lessons for Tomorrow podcast. For more information about the topics discussed today, check out the description of this episode. And if you want us to cover a specific topic or submit feedback, please email us at lessonsfortomorrow at americaneagle.com and let us know. This episode is brought to you by americaneagle.com studios. I'm your host, Tim Lanius, and I'll catch you in the next lesson.